This morning's text is a little bit longer, and it's this final sort of culmination of the book of Job in which God sort of speaks out of the whirlwind to Job. And so, you know, we've last heard from God in chapter 2. Let him be in your hands, um, but do not harm the man, uh, as he says to the accuser, the ha-satan. And we hear Job's friends and Job go over their ways of sort of thinking about the universe. And we've been waiting for this moment in which the one whom Job is calling to account will speak from the whirlwind. And so this morning I'm going to read it. Um, And Jonathan and I talked a little bit about having him play and having you bring yourself to this. I'll try to read it slower and with more um, pace, um, but to be able to think through it. Because it's one of the things as I've studied it more and more this past week Um, It seems to me, uh, well, one, God in his wisdom is like, you shall preach on a list of rhetorical questions. (laughs) Um, They're all questions. And so it becomes hard to say, you know, as a sermon, sometimes there's a temptation to distill these things into sort of an answer or to a point. Or in classical Baptist theology, three points. Um, We have three points to the sermons. But, But this is a list of questions, and I think... After we finish, I'll talk a little bit about what's come out of my thinking through it this week, but I think it really begs the question of how do you bring yourself to this list of questions, particularly in the the course of the book of Job. So I'll read it uh, now. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footing sets, or who laid its cornerstone? while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and I set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked from it. The earth takes shapes like a clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light, and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the path to their dwelling? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail for which I have reserved for times of trouble, for the days of war and of battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? 
Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstone to a land where, there, where no one lives in an uninhabited desert to be satisfied a desolate land and to make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the chains of Pieties? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead the bear out with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood? Do you send lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who gives the abyss wisdom or who gives the rooster understanding? Who has wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heaven when the dust becomes hard and the clods of the earth stick together? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of lions when they crouch in their dens or lay await in a thicket? Who provides food for the ravens when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch the doe bear away her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow in the winds. They leave and do not refer. Who let the wild donkey be free? Who untied its rope? I gave it the wasteland as its home, the salt flats as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a driver's shout. It ranges the hills for its passers and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it with the furrow with a harness? Will it till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on it for its great strengths? Will you leave your heavy work to it? Can you trust it to haul in your grain and bring it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some white animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as they were not her own. She cares not that her labor was in vain. For God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs as the horse and rider. Do you give the horse its strength or close its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? It paws fiercely, fiercely, rejoicing in its strength and charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against its side, along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, it eats up the ground. It cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, it snorts, aha. It catches the scent of battle from a prow, the shouts of commanders and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wing towards the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? 
It dwells on a cleft and stays there a night. A rocky crag is its stronghold. From there, it looks for food. Its eyes detect it from afar. Its young ones feast on blood. And where they are slain, there it is. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will speak no more. Word of the Lord. Thank you, Jonathan, for, for playing during that. So this is what we have been waiting for. And there's a bit of a question is, what type of answer is this to Job's suffering? In fact, it's more a list of questions, as I've said, than, than an answer. As the book starts, Job is in the land of Uz, and things are good. Um, everything seems as it should be, and Job is the type of person that when his his children have parties. He gets up in the morning and offers sacrifices before them beforehand. As we've talked about, this is obviously something, if a book starts this way or a movie starts this way or a play starts this way, you know trouble is coming. And so in the heavens, God appears with the heavenly court and the Hasatan, the accuser, is there. And God raises up Job in this way that, that he cherishes, delights in Job. Have you considered my servant Job? He shuns evil, he fears God, he walks in wisdom. And the accuser who's there raises the question, does Job fear God for nothing? You've put a hedge around him. And so one of the major questions of the book of Job, does Job have faith for relationship with God? Or does Job have faith for the material success and wealth he's found? It's a fine question if we leave it for Job, but the question for us as readers of Job is do we have faith because the world can be ordered in such a way having it that we win or that things make sense or that God can be the corrective to all this or do we have faith because we cherish and delight in God as well? The accuser then strikes Job in four ways, his, his flocks, his herds, his children, um, and his servants. All of them die, all come at once to tell him each of these things has happened. And Job, Job laments, um, but he says, can we take good things from the Lord and not the bad? Brings us back to the heavenly courtroom again, in which the Hasatan appears again, Job, God, again, because he has seen that Job will not curse him to his faith, which is the Hasatan's, the accuser's, the Satan's way of, of trying to get to him. Um, he says, have you seen Job? Has not cursed me to my face. Um, he still does all these things. And yet, 
You caused me to strike him without cause. Hasatan replies this time is in sort of a way that it's easy to keep faith when all around you is falling apart. I don't think it is, but that's, <laughs> that's the gambit here. But let me strike the man. Very well, he is in your hands, but do not kill him, is the last we've heard from God until now. So Job is stricken with sores and pain and all this, and he puts himself on an ash heap, so much so that when his three friends arrive, they do not recognize him because of his great sorrow. They sit in silence with him for seven days, and then Job speaks first, which I always try to remind us of, is that they were wise enough to sit in silence. And I think there's, there's a pattern, I meant to look it up, but, but in, in sh- sitting sh- Shiva, which Carla will have the correct pronouncement for, and, um, you, you can respond to people when they talk, but you're supposed to sit in silence. So if the person who's lost someone is chatty, you can be chatty with them. But if they choose to remain in silence, then you remain in silence with them. Job comes out, uh, Job's wife before this tells him, why don't you curse your God and die? Um, But Job now here curses the day of his birth. He wants to be blotted out, brought to the great darkness, and in some ways he thinks be set free in the underworld, which again comes up here in these lectures from God. Have you been there? Have you seen that place? Do you know what it's like? He asks sort of to be set free in that way. And what happens after that is Job's friends respond. They respond first, it seems like, with compassion. As any of us who have sat with suffering, we have this, um, you can start with, it's not that bad, which is, you've heard that in suffering, it's not that helpful. Um, That should be like a bumper sticker. It's not that bad, it's not that helpful. Um, uh, Because pain is pain, um, and it speaks to us nonetheless in certain ways. Um, they start with, with ways of, of sort of saying, um, you know, from wisdom we know that something might have happened, you might have done something, your suffering is of your cause. And what happens is the agitation in these lectures grows throughout in these dialogues, both the friend's agitation, all three of them um, speaking, um, and more Job's agitation grows as well. Halfway through about Job begins to imagine that he should have a day in court with God. That surely the system that he largely agrees with his friends with has made an error. So that's the thing with some of this dialogue with these friends is, is they're like, we know the world operates in this way. And a lot of time Job is like, yes, we know it operates this way, but it made a mistake. And Job, because we know the early heavenly council scene and what God says at the end of the book, Job in the heavenly mind is right. He didn't make a mistake in some way, but that Job has been, um, in the words of God, strucken for no reason. And the system that he and his friends have, again, something you may hear in the midst of your suffering that is not always that helpful, is everything happens for a reason, is their thing. And they seem to have an understanding of what the reason is. You've sinned, you've made a mistake, surely you've done something in your life that accounts for this. And while Job knows himself, at time, one time he admits that he is perhaps an ordinary sinner like everybody else, what has been handed to him is greater than the offenses he has committed. And again, 
the heavenly courtroom agrees with him. And so they go through these, these dialogues back and forth, and it ends um, in chapter 28 where Job, or there's an interlude, it, it's unclear whether it's Job speaking, we went with Job, but Job uh, talks about how humans can dig and find um, precious jewels and they can go into the earth, but where is wisdom to be found? Where is understanding found in the world? Humans, in his mind, and this is one of the questions that comes up, is why is God so mindful of humans? Humans, unlike animals, have the ability to dig deep mines and find precious jewels, and yet still they are confounded when it comes to finding wisdom. Chapter 29, chapter 30, and 31 portray 1 Job in 29 as these were the good times, and I was a good person. Chapter 30, he laments how it has all come crashing down. And where we expect meaning to come in, all this point, it's not quite clear where the meaning would come from. Where we expect meaning to come in is in 31, and yet here I found acceptance of my lot in life. That would be the end of a um, non-theistic story in some ways. Um, that I found meaning here. And yet Job still persists in the words of God in his integrity. And his final words at the end of 31 is he says, I need to have this account before him. He says, um, let the Almighty answer me. After that, um, and this is the Elihu speech starts, which I had trouble with last week. It's a weird speech. It's a weird insert into the book. But one of the helpful things it does, if Job says, let the Almighty answer me, and the Almighty comes, it creates a very weird relationship between God and Job, that God can be summoned like a butler. So Elihu fills the void for five chapters, um, at least a third recounting what's been said, a third somewhat trying to assert new material, and a third where he kind of has this correct perspective is that consider storms. But after he finishes speaking, Job does not respond. Um, but then we begin to where we are today. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. It's an important thing here is that the writer of the book of Job um, places this answer both in poetry. God doesn't speak in prose. He speaks in poetry. And poetry has this way of sort of expanding the heart to matters in the way that prose doesn't. He speaks in uh, what's called the phenopony. Phenop I looked this up before church. Theopony. Uh, um, this sort of divine vision that comes. And he speaks with rhetorical questions. And as we've talked about in the book of Job, it has this weird thing that this name, which in most of our Bibles, Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized, um, is the divine name given to the Israelites um, first to Moses in the um, wilderness. Um, I am who I am. You maybe heard it spoken as Yahweh. But throughout the book, the, the introduction, it, he is called, God is called the Lord. But as the friends in Job's dialogue, it's El Shaddai, it's El, it's all these other names for God that are not the divine 
name. Reasons, perhaps, for that, but just to say that they're talking about God. Um, Elohim, one of the famous ones, is the God of many gods. But out of the storm speaks the particular God of Israel. The Lord speaks out of the whirlwind. And he begins with two questions, or one question, really, which is, who is this who obscures my plans without words of knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, or in the beauty of the King James, gird up your loins, and I will question you, and you will answer me. Job and his friends have had a lot of time questioning and pondering about the universe that God made, how things work, how things hold together, what things should be leveled and what things shouldn't be leveled. They've designed, um, have you ever been in a work meeting where like, uh, Shelley says this a lot, I think, is, is we've solved all the problems, but then people came. Um, that, that, that Job and his friends have this way of, if, if they had had their way, perhaps they could have designed the perfect universe except for all the flaws in the system. We have that way of, of one of the ways we talked about this earlier, and it comes from the postmodern philosopher Deleuze, but that, that we set up these umbrellas to draw our sketches in the sand at how we might understand the world. And what happens is suffering or art or questions rip holes in the umbrella. And we have two choices at that moment. Prepare, repair the umbrella, or let the storm wipe away those sketches in which we have. And the great challenge is we, we, as humans, are always a mix of both. I mean, there's certainly within me, first, always repair the umbrella, um, because it's better to have your small schemes on how things are supposed to work than it is to be left in the storm. I think that's very natural and very human. But then the second um, is to say, is it really worth it? How many times do I want to repair this umbrella? And what happens for some of us is we become jaded and we just come up with the crummiest picture of what should happen and then just let it get washed away and pretend like we don't care. Um, Job, the book of Job doesn't let us rest in that either. Um, and it, as Job is a figure of Christ, it is only Christ who really truly stands in the storm of the world at the cross without protection. Only Christ who can bear that. To say that I, me, individual Matt, will be the one who also bears the burdens of all existence and remains his integrity is to fail greatly. <laughs> and to fail um, not just greatly, but stupidly, I think. Um, to overestimate my own ability. Raise yourself like a man, and I shall question you, and you shall answer me. Now, one of the things I said, we have to bring ourselves to this section of the book of Job. We have to ask ourselves what's being spoken of here as I've traced the outline of the book to get us to this point. And the great challenge, I think, is part of, if you want to know the meaning of this section of the book of Job, do you hear God yelling at Job? That will bring a particular meaning to bear. Do you hear God comforting Job? That too will bring a particular meaning out of the structure. 
See, this is the hard part about the Bible is they didn't film it or record it for us. So what is the tone in which God speaks to Job? And not only that, most of us have read Scripture with a default tone. And what if it's a different one? For instance, to read the Sermon on the Mount as if it were... um, an angry preacher, or to read this as if it were an angry preacher, would give particular meaning to how you would understand it. Whether you like it or not would be a different question, but it would give you a different way of understanding it. And yet we continually hear these things in our own sort of way of understanding how God might speak. Part of the question I want to raise at the start as you bring yourself to this text, to these words, is to allow yourself to be unsettled in whatever your default one is it may not be the right one. Um, And there may be something of comfort in these. There may be something of demand. There may be something of confrontation. I mean, certainly I think all three are in there. But, But I don't have, I think, a voice in my head that I can think of that reflects all those things. Um, so we have to listen to it in other ways. It's a weird aside. I had friends who I was, I really loved the movie Field of Dreams, and I said, James Earl Jones sounds like the voice of God, and so they bought me the New Testament read by James Earl Jones, which has its soothing effect in calming nature, but again, it can lead you to think God only sounds like James Earl Jones. Um, some of, I know some of us are like, fair, um, as far as options go, um, but then Job, God's, God's goal here is he takes, this is the first response. We'll do the second response next week. So this is God's first response to Job. So it begins, the second one begins the same way as sort of brace yourself like a man and I will question you. He takes him through a different tour of the universe, particularly two different animals in the next week. But in this week, he takes him through sort of this weird tour of the universe that goes through um, both like astronomy, how all the world is, uh, or geology, I guess, how the world is found, um, to the skies, to the sea, um, to a journey through the weather, uh, meteorology's in here, astrology's in here. He's got all of it, the clouds. And he takes them through that, and then he shifts, God shifts, to zoology. Look at these animals. Look at these things. Again, why do I suffer? Were you there when I laid the earth's foundations? Or in my favorite one, look at the ostrich. God's answers here, questions, not answers, are strange. And so he begins with the earth. And, and like the psalm that Jonathan read for us, God is set up sort of as this master architect throughout many of the Hebrew, Hebrew poetry, is that God lays dimensions, he, he lays out the earth, he puts a cornerstone in its place, um, hopefully bringing to mind for some of us that um, Christ is the stone the builders rejected, and yet he has become the cornerstone. Were you there when I laid that cornerstone? But needless to say is, is that, that God is set up as sort of this master architect who lays out the dimensions of the earth. And the important question, I think, in this first one is that's going to radiate throughout the book as Job sits in his lament and in his tears is while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. 
Did you see that? Or is the world mainly what you see? Is your case against God accounting for the fact that when the dimensions were laid and the cornerstone was put in place, the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? The next one, Kelly's favorite, is this one on the sea who set the she behind the door when it burst forth from the room. We've talked about this a lot, particularly in Genesis, as God tames the seas. But there is this chaotic nature in the seas. And much of the ancient Near East poetry has um, the divine sort of taming the relationship of the water, the teeming chaos of the seas. But yet Job, or God tells Job that it is that way, and yet it was born, it was caught in swaddling clothes. God has placed that dangerous sea into a playpen. When I made the cloud its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limit for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, this is where your proud waves stop. What we see and what has been in other parts of the Bible shown as that most odd and destructive of forces. God says, were you there when I caught it out of the birth canal and then placed it in its place? Next, have you ever given morning, orders to the morning or to shown the dawn its place? Here he invites Job to consider the heavens, that the light shines. And, and again, important if you're going to sit with this, is that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked with out of it. Two or three times God's going to refer to what the wicked do, but it seems like they're set in limit like the sea, but they still exist. We, like Job and his friends, would much prefer to design a universe in which there is no wicked. And uh, in the great phrase from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, um, uh, whoever wishes to ru- rid the world of evil must cut out half of his own heart. We would make a world that none of us could live in. Or Dietrich Bonhoeffer's lines about the church is that if you ever found a perfect church, surely it would be ruined by you showing up there. Um, we would design the world in such a way. The wicked are denied their light, and the upright ours is broken. As the sun sort of comes over it, the light gives light to what the wicked are doing, and then they're caught in that. Next, he considers um, the vast expanseness of the earth. He goes to the heavens where the light, have you, what is the way to the abode of light, and where does darkness reside? Job has been lecturing in his places about how light and darkness, he wants to go to darkness, 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 and yet he doesn't know where darkness resides, or the way to the abode of light. In his depression and in his angst, he wants to sort of sit in darkness. But do you know the path to their dwellings? And then, God, hear how you hear this one. Surely you know, for you were already born. Is God making a joke? You have lived so many years. He invites him next to consider the meteorology of the world. Have you entered the storehouses of snow or seen the storehouses of hail? Do you know where weather comes from? Have you considered how these things work? And even more important in this passage, and it'll come up with the animals, is that God brings rain to uninhabitable places and 
grass grows there. Would you have designed a world with that kind of care? You think about your crops. You might think about your neighbor and family's crops. And you might think about your town or country. But would you think of the place where there is nobody and no existence to send and nurture so that grass might grow there? You'll never visit it. You'll never go. But have you considered that desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whom wombs comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the earth becomes as hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you figure out how to set the weather? Next, he goes to astronomy, this, the stars. Um, Job earlier has lamented that Job, one, thinks he can flee from God and go into the wilderness. So this idea that like even rain comes there, you will never be far from my care. You will never be in a place where at least some of my goodness won't touch you. Try that on for size and your, your anxiety and angst to, to have that imagination birth first for you. Job has said the stars just don't seem to make any sense either. And here God calls him to account to saying, you guys understand consolations, but can you call them forth? Can you put them in order? Can you make the stars point to north? Can you set up God's dominion on earth? We pray in the Lord's Prayer, not that our kingdom come, but that God's kingdom come, and that God's will be done. And not only that, we displace ourselves in it. It's not my version of God's kingdom. It's not my hope. It's not my understanding. Uh, Can you set up God's dominion on earth? Can you call out lightning? Can you give these things? Who has wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jaws of heaven when the dust becomes hard and the clouds and the earth become sick? Next, to the animals. Do you hunt for prey with the lioness and satisfy the hunger of lions? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God? Two very opposite animals here. One, the noble lion, and even in Israel's history, while it's not... Uh, particularly a, a clean animal, it's seen with great strength and courage. There's a tribe with, with the name of the lion, but then also the raven. And the question here is who feeds them? Are you the one who designed a world so that the lioness can get its food? Are you the one who hears the raven cry and wander about for the lack of food? Mountain goats, do you know when they give birth? Do you watch the does bear her fawn? Mountain goats and, and, and these undomesticated. See, see, in the ancient Near East, if you were a farmer, and Job had uh, herds, he knew about those ones. But have you ever considered the ones that nobody seems to care for? I mean, it often amazes me that wild, all the stuff that goes into giving a safe birth at Valley View Hospital, and then you think this happens in nature all the time, and there is no help, who cares at that moment? Now, obviously, I I don't know what their success rate is. I'm guessing it's lower than ours, but to the point of, like, it happens naturally in the natural world. Are you the one who knows about that? Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its rope? And um, in several of these animals from here, they laugh. They delight in who they are. 
ranges the hills for its pastors, a church for every green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Sure, you've tamed and domesticated an animal to plow your field, but would you trust the wild ox? Would you hook up your plow to, in our, uh, in our, our uh, part of the world, an elk? Would you trust the moose to plow your fields? I think straight lines are important, not a farmer, and I've never seen a moose really do something like that. Would you rely on that person's, that animal's great strength? Um, the, the one in which brings me great joy, the ostrich, which is such an odd animal. The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully. Why? They're not going anywhere. You can see God is, is pointing out delight and laughter and in this odd sense in which creation has this different way of being. Apparently, ostriches, as I've read commentaries this week, they're like, you know, zoologists have confirmed they're not as bad as they're portrayed in the book of Job, which win for the ostriches, I guess, um, as they spend time reading the book of Job. Um, that is not us. Um, apparently, they don't just leave the egg in the sand and wait for it to get crushed, and they're not that hard with their young. Um, but Job earlier had said, I'd rather be out with the cries of the ostrich." And to God, these are not cries, but the word he gives for them is, is she laughs. God doesn't hear the cries of the ostriches as, as a pain or as a, uh, you were born ridiculous, um, which when you look at the ostrich, seems that way. He hears laughter. And the only domesticated animal throughout this, do you... Um, did you uh, give the horse its strength? That this, this, this war horse, its joy in being in the battle is something that gives God some sort of joy to point it out. If, if you're thinking, this is an interesting thing, um, uh, I'll say it actually at the end. Um, it, at the trumpet's blast, it snorts a ha. It has such great joy. And, and for, the, for the warrior who has a war horse, it's, it's a bit of a, I think, a blessing and a curse. The, it's equipped for this, and yet it craves this. If you've been with sled dogs, they love to run. They love to get out there like that. Sure, you've tamed them, but you hook them up to your sled, and they go where they go. They run as they run. The war horse is in the same way. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom? I don't know how long you've spent thinking about how birds fly and why. It doesn't happen by my wisdom. Um, you know, does the hawk take flight by your wisdom? Does the eagle soar at your command? From there, it looks for food. Its eyes detect for fire. And then the Lord said, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Now this, how do you want to hear this? Um, is God minimizing Job like Job said he would? Or would he saying, you've contended, will you answer me? Obviously, this list of rhetorical questions has no answer, but we can hear that in lots of different ways. Job responds in the Hebrew, the I'm unworthy, literally reads as, I am small. I am small. And perhaps that is the point of this first speech. We can prescribe all sorts of things we want to Job, uh, in this speech, but it really just has um, a way of sort of revealing the ways in which we don't understand things. 
Uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, um, I don't read a lot of liberation theology, famous liberation theologian though, and it, I thought in his commentary on the book of Job, he would say, you know, justice is still the most important thing. That's what motivates liberation theologians. And yet what he had to say is revealing the free, God's answer reveals the free and gratuitous of divine love, and it's the only thing that can bind our two freedoms together. My thinking about this, and I've had the time to do it, is maybe the point of all of this isn't us weighing the scales of justice. Now think about that in light of modern politics and the modern world, in which mainly the spiritual gift we've all been given is keeping score, making sure it's all even. What if the point is the gratuitous of God's love that doesn't hear the ostrich as a cry, but hears it as a sound of joy? Have you considered those things? Finally, to close, and this is, I've heard this quote a thousand times, and it's never made sense until this week while I was thinking along, it's outside the book of Job, it's on the back of the bulletin. I thought it was on a slide, I think it is actually. Yes, here it is. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. God speaks out of the whirlwind. Job knows terrible things happen. He knows deeply in his call for justice and that God would come and give him account that terrible things happen. Here's the other half. Here is the world beautiful, delightful, gratuitous love of creation will happen. And in the most common command throughout all of the Bible, don't be afraid. Let us pray. God, we as your servants have been privileged to hear your speech from the whirlwind. We too have cried out at injustice. We too have cried out at our own pain. We too have asked, what is the point of all this? And yet, as hard as it is to see a point, you don't reply with the point of all this. Instead, you draw us into the wonders and beauties of your creation. You draw animals near to us that we might learn our creatureliness all over again. God, as Jude read for us from the book of Colossians, that your son is the invisible image imprinted on all of creation. He's the cornerstone in which is spoken of in the book of Job. He is the king whose dominion we might set up to come on earth, but comes through his reign. We pray that we might be faithful servants to hear that as well as we await your future consummation of all things. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.